Bridging the gap between the eye test and the analytics, it's the Staff and Graph Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Dory and Ian Tullock. Welcome to the Staff and Graph Podcast. I'm Rachel Dory. And I'm Ian Tullock. How are you doing this week, Rachel? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing not too bad. I feel like I got that like little tickle in my throat that everybody has right now just because it's that time of year and everyone's getting sick right before playoffs. But other than that, I feel like I'm doing all right. Is there any team that doesn't have some type of disgusting flu right now? Because I feel like every team we hear about has something. As a Leafs fan, I mean, they've all had like the plague lately. Like if, if it's not one player missing a game, it's two or three. I don't know what it is. But yeah, man, we got to wash our hands way more often. Yeah, please wash your hands, everyone. Public service announcement. We don't need to be spreading crap. All right, so now that we've done the parental uh, part of our podcast, we can move on to the actual hockey part. What is the topic du jour that we're going to be diving in today, Rachel? Smaller skilled players and the shift from where the game was 10 years ago, specifically to where it is now. This is definitely something I can get behind. It's something I've been preaching for for the last few years. I know in the Leafs 2016 draft, they drafted a bunch of tall guys, and I was frustrated that they didn't draft guys like Debrinkat and Sam Gerrard and Adam Fox. The list goes on, and a few years later, it's looking like, hey, man, they would have been a lot better off if they had relied on on skill and speed as opposed to height. Yeah, and I'll I'll just say, like, to start, we're not going to hit players that haven't been drafted yet, so undrafted players or really prospects unless they've played if they're not signed to an NHL contract we're probably going to talk about them on a different podcast so we'll talk about Cole Caulfield later exactly or Jack Hughes or any of those players um just because with the draft coming there's going to be so much to talk about there and that's probably going to dominate the June part of the podcast so we probably should just focus on the players who are starring in the NHL right now that works for me so as just a, a blanket statement when it comes to height in the NHL, how, how valuable do you think it is in 2019? Not, not just height, but size in general. Because I think Crosby's 5'11", but it, we've all seen him you know, doing squats and the pictures of him in tight pants. That guy, he's got a pretty big booty and, and it helps him on the, on the cycle down low. So we're not talking about height per se, because if you're small, even if you're 6'2", like Elias Pettersson, I think he's like 160 pounds. So we're, we're more talking about small players in the NHL. How important do you think size is in the modern game? To be honest, like I don't think size is as important as it was 10 years ago just because of the way that the game has changed. The game's gone to a more speed and skill. And even though you're allowed to get away with murder in the playoffs, you can still get away with a lot less than you could 10 years ago in terms of the clutching and grabbing and hooking. So you don't need to be as big and brash whether it's height or it's weight. Nowadays, when it comes to fighting in puck battles or winning races, because you're just not allowed to do some of the things that you were allowed to do 10 years ago that gave the bigger guys the advantage. Yeah, and I know when we're talking about the elite first line center, we always used to think of that big six foot three, six foot four kind of guy, you know, the Joe Thornton, the Ryan Getzlaff, the Anze Kopitar. But it's funny, you look at the the like the, the leading scores in the NHL. I was looking at the top twenty, and a lot of the scorers who are dominating this league are between five eight and five eleven, hundred seventy to hundred eighty pounds. I think you went through the top ten and you found that I think half of them were just really small dudes. Well, yeah, like if you look at it, Nikita Kucherov is a beast this year, and he's 5'11", 176 pounds, and that is, yes, he's a little bit bigger than some of the other guys, but when you look at 2008-2009, here are your top 10 scorers, Malkin, Ovechkin, Sid, who is still in the top 10 this year, and that's insane. He's thick with two Cs. Yeah. Pavel Datsuk and Zach Parise. Ilya Kovalchuk, Ryan Getzlav, Jerome Ginla, Mark Savard, who was on the smaller side, Nick Backstrom, Jeff Carter, and Joe Thornton. Mostly big guys. All big dudes, except Mark Savard, basically. Zach Parise is not the biggest either. Yeah, he's like 5'11", but even Nick Backstrom is six feet or six foot one and he's 210 pounds like that's a big individual he's deceptively strong on the puck exactly so when you're thinking that the smallest guy in that top 10 is Zach Parise and Mark Savard 
there, that's two guys. And then you look at today, and your top 10 scorers are the aforementioned Kucherov, McDavid, who is big, Patrick Kane, Leon Dreisaitl, also big, Sid, again, Johnny Goudreau, who's a generous five foot nine. He's not five foot nine. Brad Marchand, also five foot nine. Uh, Nate McKinnon, who's big, and Braden Point, who is definitely not big. Yeah, Braden Point, is he even 170 pounds right now? Oh, I don't think so. I think, like, Elias Pettersson is listed as 170-something. He is not 170-something. <laughs> that guy is 165. But I think the idea here is that the game is, it's funny, in 2008-2009, we were saying, wow, the game has changed so much from before the lockout, you know, now that obstructions come into play, it's allowing some of these smaller players to take over, but even 10 years after that, we're, we've taken another step forward to where the most dominant players in the game, a lot of them are under 6 feet tall, a lot of them are under 180 pounds, and you have a guy like Kucherov, who's just able to use his skill, use his vision of the ice to create space for himself in the offensive zone. He zips these cross-ice passes like there's no tomorrow. And he dominates the game with his smarts more than his physical size. Yeah, so even when you look at guys who aren't in the top 10 in scoring, you look at some of the young players in the game. Like when I say the names, Braden Point, Mitch Marner, Johnny Goudreau, Elias Pettersson, Artemi Panarin, and Clayton Keller... Do any of those names jump out as, oh my god, that guy's menacing? Or Sebastian Ajo is one of my favorites in Carolina. He's, what, 175 pounds? I think that's pretty generous. <laughs> like, I, what do you think? Like, Do you think teams just kind of decided, okay, this is the way the game's being called. Maybe these smaller players are going to be able to have more of an impact because of the, the way the game's going? I mean, if, if that were the case, why would Kucherov have gone in the second round? Why did Sebastian Ajo go in the second round? I feel like it's happening because their talent's taking over and they're, and they're proving doubters wrong. But I still feel like when it comes to where these players are actually drafted, it hasn't caught up yet. Because, I mean, Alex Dabrinkat went in the second round when there's no way he should have. Yeah, he is, I would even say three or four years ago, if he's six feet tall, that is a top ten pick. Not even top, top five. five pick. Yeah, he had back-to-back 50 goal years in the OHL. Yeah, and you could attribute some of that to playing with a generational talent in McDavid. But at the end of the day, a schmuck is not putting 50 goals in the net. Like, back-to-back season. So I think that teams are starting to realize that size is not as big of a factor when it comes to your superstars because of the way the game is being played and officiated. So... Maybe there's a philosophical change. I'm not sure that we're quite there yet, but you're definitely starting to see it on the ice in the way that you just haven't before because these players, I mean, say what you want about Brad Marchand. He's the game's best pest, but he's five foot nine and he plays on the penalty kill, on the power plays, on the top line. Like, he's a terrific hockey player. So, what are those rule changes, or at least when it comes to officiating? Why is it you think that a guy like Kucherov or Panarin or Braden Point, Mitch Marner, Sebastian Ajo, why are they dominating the game more today than a player like that would have been 10 or 15 years ago? I think the best example is um, holding for me. And a lot of people say it's hooking, but when I, when I watch the game, hashtag watch the game, um, for me it's holding and interference. And the best example I can think of is When you're battling along the boards, let's say Kucherov's battling along the boards against a bigger Shea Weber type, for example. Before, Shea Weber used to be able to reach outside his body and kind of grab Kucherov and like guide him around. And and that would definitely help him win that battle. Nowadays, I'm seeing officials, the second the person, whoever it is, whether it's the forward or the defenseman, the second a player in the battle goes to reach outside of his body to contain a player it's called consistently so you can no longer reach outside of your body so the bigger guys aren't able to use their bigger reach or their strength and they're not able to lean or hold the smaller guys as much as they used to and when it comes to interference the players nowadays like a Johnny Goudreau or a Mitch Marner a Patrick Kane um, they're so silky and They're like a water bug, kind of, and you just can't stick your hand out. You can't get in their way, so they're getting by a lot quicker. And if you do stick your hand out or you put your body in the way, you're likely getting two minutes, right? So I think that it's totally changed the way that you defend because you're just not allowed to do some of the things that you would before. 
And I think back to 20 years ago, I'm thinking of guys like Scott Hannon or Darian Hatcher who were exceptional shutdown defensemen, but they wouldn't be able to survive in the modern game because they relied on a lot of that holding in the corners like you talked about. Scott Hannon is one of the perfect examples of if you went into the corner, he would wrap you to the to the boards. He'd almost bear hug you essentially, and then he'd, he'd take you out of the play. Someone would come in, scoop the puck, and you'd be going the other way. You can't do that anymore. So the second a guy like Mitch Marner is in the corner with the puck, he's able to pivot out of there real quickly and evade pressure quicker than he would have been able to. And now all of a sudden he's wheeling around the offensive zone with the puck looking for a backdoor pass. That style didn't work 20 years ago because, again, the physical, grabby defenseman would, would, would lock you down as you got closer to the boards and, and slow things down. I like the way the game's evolved. I think it's led to a lot more speed and creativity in the offensive zone. I think the counter argument is that now that speed and skill is being prioritized so much, size and physicality has almost become a market inefficiency because a guy like Tom Wilson, for example, as much as we get frustrated with some of his late hits or shots to the head that we're not a fan of, when it comes to his play 90% of the time, or let's say 95% of the time, I feel like he's such an effective power forward that's hard to game plan against for in the modern age because there simply aren't many guys like that anymore. Because Tom Wilson, yeah, he hits you. Yeah, he's intimidating on the forecheck. But he's also a top six player who's very good at complementing skilled players like Ovechkin or Backstrom or Kuznetsov. Do you think he's like the modern day Rick Nash type? That's what I'm trying to determine because Rick Nash was what a 40 goal scorer I think he or, or 39 that year when 39 won the the Rocket Richard it was a three way tie yeah but not so much in the scoring I'm talking like he's the power he's the modern day power forward where you don't score as much but you are a menace out there like nobody wants to go in the corner with you because they know it's not nice like how many people want to battle with Rick Nash in those days not many. And that's what I'm wondering. I'm wondering if we start to see a few more players like that, because when we talk about market inefficiencies, it's all about trying to find something that other teams aren't going for. Like, oh, wow, no team is drafting a player under five foot eight. Let's draft this Johnny Gaudreau guy in the fourth round and see if he pans out. Now, as more teams start to do that, do you think we're going to start to see a more of a prioritization on these physical guys? And maybe if you can get them to go to the net and finish on their chances, maybe that will be the new market inefficiency as this game becomes speedier and more skilled Maybe the Tom Wilson power forward type starts to provide more value because other teams just can't defend it. See, that's kind of, I don't really know because when you look at the way minor hockey, at least in Canada, has changed, kids aren't even hitting until they're 14. So you don't really even have the opportunity to create that type of power forward because that kid who's 6'3 isn't really learning to hit until he's 14 or 15 and then by then... He's bigger than everyone else, so you've got suspensions at play because now he's just killing kids. So I think, just having watching, I have a 15-year-old brother who's played hockey all the way up, and even watching at the OHL Cup, there's significantly less physicality at that level than there ever has been. And so I think hockey's almost getting away from the Tom Wilson types because it's not the safest way to play hockey and at the end of the day if you need young kids to play hockey to have NHLers who play hockey and parents aren't going to put their kids in a game that is not safe kind of thing right so I think the Tom Wilson type maybe over the next five years is potentially a an inefficiency but I think you'll totally start to see that type of player and the way that you've seen fighting just completely kind of go away quietly because the suspension should start to be a little bit heavier for some of the hits and things like that because kids in minor hockey now that are even McDavid's age, they know what is and is not okay when it comes to hitting. So the suspensions need to start being consistent with the intent of the actual contact. Yeah, and I feel like what you were talking about when it comes to the game evolving, and especially at the lower levels, I feel like it reminds me a lot of what we've seen in football recently. The fact that helmet-on-helmet contact has resulted in a lot of injuries, you know, trying to protect quarterbacks, trying to prevent as many players on the field from getting concussions as you can. Exactly. It leads to less contact, less hitting. And in hockey, the equivalent is, you know, those huge hits along the boards, giant open ice hits. Uh, a hit where even though the head wasn't the the primary point of contact, it was a part that got hit pretty heavily. And I think that that's something we're going to start to see punished more in the future. And 
like you said, that's going to result in the Tom Wilsons of the world maybe not being as effective anymore. And then the best way to create an aggressive forecheck is with speed and just raw tenacity. When I think of the best forecheckers in the NHL, it's funny. I don't think of Tom Wilson necessarily because I'm thinking of a guy like Brad Marchand. He's five foot nine. He's not the most intimidating guy, but if you're a defenseman going back on a puck, Brad Marchand is right on top of you. He's aggressive. He uses his stick to, to frustrate you. Brendan Gallagher is very similar. These dudes are like five foot nine, but they're right on top of you. And even though it might not be scaring you to the point where you're worried about getting physically hurt, I'd be worried about losing puck possession. And I feel like when we're talking about players that are hard to play against and all players I don't like playing against, I feel like a lot of the times we're thinking of the Roman Polak types like, oh, I don't like playing against a Roman Polak. Well, yeah, he hurts you when he's on the ice. It's physically, uh, it takes a physical toll on your body to go against him, but you're going to control shots and chances 55% of the time against him, so I'll live with that. Yeah, do you want to play against Roman Polak or do you want to play against Alex Ovechkin? Because Alex Ovechkin's going to hit you, like, way harder. Or my opinion is, Roman Polak or Eric Carlson, who's tougher to play against? One guy is going to hit you, the other guy is going to dominate you and and live in the offense's own when you're on the ice. I think it was Sean uh, McIndoe who made the comparison of, a bully who's going to beat the crap out of you and take the lunch money out of your pocket 40% of the time, or a guy who's going to sneak into your back pocket and take it out 60% of the time. You know, one's more effective than the other, even though one hurts a hell of a lot more. It's what makes me think of that Brad Marchand, Brendan Gallagher style of forechecking compared to the more physical, aggressive Matt Martin, Tom Wilson style of forechecking. I think you bring up a solid point um, with Brendan Gallagher. I think instead of market inefficiency being the Tom Wilson type, I think the market inefficiency is the Brendan Gallagher type. There aren't a lot of players like Brendan Gallagher. He's not big. He's not particularly dirty. Like He hasn't been suspended all that much, if at all, if I can recall. And yes, he's injured because of how hard he plays, but that guy is at the front of the net pissing off the goalie. He's winning puck battles. That's the type of player that I think teams are going to look for to fill that sort of gritty role. Even somebody like an Andrew Shaw, a Zach Hyman, those types are probably going to be the way that teams go. Kind of like the modern day power forward, and it feels funny to say it about a five foot nine player like Brendan Gallagher, but that's kind of what it reminds me of. I think it's someone like Patrick Hornquist in Pittsburgh. Yeah, just someone who really pisses you off on the forecheck, gets to the dirty areas all the time, wins every puck battle, and then at the end of the shift, he buries a garbage goal because he was able to get to that spot before you. That's tough to defend. Yeah, and I think we're also seeing uh, a change, not even just with the superstars being smaller, but even if you look at like middle six forwards, so guys who aren't on the top line, but and they're also not on the fourth line. So you look at like a Tyler Johnson or a Cam Atkinson. I think DeBrincat will eventually end up on the top line, but for now he's not. A Nikolai Ehlers, even a Vinny Hinestroza. Like those are all examples of guys who aren't the superstars of the league quite yet, but they're very effective and they're not very big, but it's because of what you talked about. They're they're good on the forecheck. They I do believe and you could definitely verify this they all have pretty good possession numbers so they all have the puck but it's kind of the new modern day way of forechecking which is instead of the heavy heavy cycle game that maybe the kings played in even 2012 now it's more of get the puck create a scoring chance recover the puck create a scoring chance kind of thing I think Vegas might be the best example of that. Just their swarm. The second they lose the puck, they're right on top of you. And even though Jonathan Marcheseau is like five foot nine, a buck eighty, if his line loses the puck in the offense zone, him and Riley Smith and William Carlson are right on top of you. You don't have any space to operate. You turn the puck over and boom, now it's a three on two the other way, and they generate a crazy scoring chance. I feel like that's the modern way of playing defense. It's not necessarily physical and in your face, but it's using your speed and using your stick to take away as much space as you can. Exactly, and that's why you see those types of players with solid possession numbers, if I'm not mistaken. Um, They have the puck 55, 60, 65% of the time, and that's not even just shot share. It's like actual on-ice possession. Their team has the puck more than 50% of the time when they're on the ice. And it's not because they're leaning on guys. It's because they're consistently either they're playing a swarm like Vegas or they're carrying the puck and wheeling around the zone like William Nylander or Mitch Marner or Clayton Keller. 
it's that type of play. It's no longer let me lean on a guy and and cycle in the way that Jeff Carter did or the way that Ryan Getzlav and Corey Perry did. It's closer to let me use my skill on the rush. You're referring to which forwards have great possession numbers. When I think of a Brendan Gallagher or I think of uh, Matthew Perot is another excellent example. When these guys are on the ice, they're living in the offensive zone. I mean, their shot metrics are fantastic. Expected goals is something I'm a big fan of. That's an area where Brendan Gallagher or uh, Patrick Hornquist are fantastic because not only are they generating lots of shots and generating lots of possession in the offensive zone, they're so good at going to the front of the net and winning battles in the first you know, five to ten feet in that low slot area. They're generating high danger chances. And it's funny, these aren't the biggest guys in the world, but... It's not necessarily the size of the, the dog in the fight. It's the size of the fight in the dog. And I know that we probably shouldn't be using that reference in, in 2019 anymore. I apologize. But it's something that my dad used to say growing up. And I was always one of the smaller guys in the team. But I thought, okay, I'm, I'm not going to win this, this battle with my, you know, my, my pure size and my pure strength. So I just got to want that puck more. Exactly. And it's not about necessarily having the brawn. It's about having the brain. How am I going to get this puck? Look at Pavel Datsuk. I mean, even... In 2008-2009, when he was one of the smaller, like he was only 5'11", but he did not weigh a lot, and he was pretty slight, but he was strong, but that wasn't why he had the most takeaways in the NHL. That guy had the best set of hands I, I have ever seen, to be quite honest, like whether it was stick handling in the shootout or stick handling around players, puck protection... But even when somebody else had the puck, you had to be mindful of when he was on the ice because he might have been smaller than the Getzlavs or the Thorntons. But if you had to give me one player to go into a corner into just like a a stick battle with, I would be taking Pavel Datsuk because he's just so smart with how he attacks getting the puck back that he pretty much out-muscled all of those guys because of the way he approached it. So I think you're seeing a change in approach and it's more the Datsuk approach where players who aren't necessarily as big as the Cheras or the Webers are able to go in and get the puck. And not only is that because of how the game's officiated, but it's also because they're understanding that there are different ways you don't have to be the strongest guy in the fight to get the puck. Now, is this an area where you think Tampa excels? Because... I find it interesting comparing a team like Toronto to Tampa Bay because I look at the talent on their roster and I go, wow, just dominant top six. Even your third line has a bunch of top six players on it. Like in Tampa Bay, it's uh, whether it's Yanni Gord down there, Tyler Johnson, Andre Palat. Sometimes they just they have a disgusting amount of talent there. In Toronto, it's Nazem Kadri, Kasperi Kapanen. There's a lot of skill in Toronto, but watching them day in, day out, their possession numbers and their ability to live in the offensive zone isn't nearly as good as a team like Tampa Bay. So even though Tampa Bay has a smaller roster of guys who aren't necessarily the biggest or strongest guys on the planet, why are their possession numbers so much better? Because that's always something I've, I've struggled to come to terms with as a Leafs fan. See, I think with Tampa, um, they do have guys who have been in the league a little bit longer at the top end. So a guy like Stamkos has obviously been in the league longer than Austin Matthews and even Tyler Johnson. But when you watch Tampa and how they come through the neutral zone, but once they get into the offensive zone, they do not make that extra pass. Every pass or every play they make is done with purpose. There's never like, oh, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm just going to throw the puck to player X. It's everything is done with a specific purpose in mind. They're I haven't seen one instance in a long time where they've been too cute, we'll call it, in the offensive zone. They're just, they're very deliberate. And I think Toronto, um, part of the reason they give the puck away in the offensive zone or there's a lot of one and done chances is because, well, William Nylander shoots the puck over the net like way too much. (laughs) But they come in and they either, they rush and they don't get that quality scoring chance and they're not in position to recover the puck, or they try and get way too cute. And I would say, like, obviously Mitch Marner is one of the best passers, but sometimes he does get a little cute instead of just being deliberate, and sometimes he's got to shoot the puck, right? So I think having a guy like Tavares on the team who does play deliberate, he's not very cute very often. Tampa has more of those guys that play very direct, 
very deliberate hockey. And so when they create a scoring chance, they know that everyone on the ice knows, okay, if we don't score, we're immediately in a puck recovery mode and it's very disciplined. And I think Toronto is not quite there yet. They're just not as disciplined with the puck as Tampa is. I don't think any team in the NHL is as disciplined as Tampa with the puck. They're just, it's incredible. And when you watch them on the power play, it's just not fair. It's <laughs> oh my we God, talked no. about that last week or two weeks ago. Yeah, their uh, their power play movement is, but it's again, it, it's very deliberate. They do not pass up a scoring chance. If there's an open net or even a chance at a high danger scoring chance, they're probably not going to make that extra pass. Like they're going to fire it. So we've been talking mostly about top six talent around the league or even like top nine talent when it comes to some of these smaller but speedier and skilled players. We'll talk about defense on another podcast altogether because I feel like the Tory Krug, Jared Spurgeon, Ryan Ellis discussion, I feel like that could be a really good one for another day and we're starting to run out of time here. So when it comes to smaller forwards, I'm of the opinion that you should just run skill all throughout your lineup and I'd be running a skilled fourth line, a skilled third line, you know, the skilled top two lines. What's your opinion when it comes to guys in the fourth line, whether it's like a Tyler Ennis or maybe a Dennis Malgin on Florida, a Brendan Leipzig? Because personally, I'm a huge fan of guys who can skate the puck up the ice through the neutral zone, help you create possession in the offensive zone and have some finishing talent because I feel like a lot of the times fourth line shifts just tend to be boring little cycle shifts in the offensive zone where guys with no finishing talent are firing shots from low distance areas. Having some skill out there, in my opinion, helps you score a few more goals. And I know we've seen that with Tyler Ennis in Toronto this year. We saw that with Sam Gagne back in, on Columbus's fourth, fourth line a few years ago. What's your opinion when it comes to running skill throughout four lines? See, I think your top three lines should absolutely be your, your skill lines um, with your third line or realistically um, any line should be able to effectively be a checking line but if you're gonna have a line that has sort of more defensive prowess it it probably should be your third line because you really want to load up your top six um I get that you want to have skill on your fourth line however I do think it's important to have and Tampa does this players like Alex Kalorn and even a couple years back Teddy Purcell was very good for them on their fourth line so I think it's important to have those types, even a Ryan Callahan type. I don't know about that cap hit. <laughs> I, I'm not even going to go near that cap hit. That's a totally different conversation. I'm just ta- strictly like player type. I think having Tyler Ennis on the fourth line is effective. I, after having seen them play and just how they fit together, I don't think you can have the Patan Ennis more line. They just, the game is not there yet. And when you look at the way that other teams and what they expect from their fourth line. So you look at Boston's fourth line, I believe, like Noel Achari. First of all, he beat the living crap out of Mackenzie Weger last night. But when you look at Boston's fourth line and they have a Noel Achari type on there, you still need guys who can go in and lean on guys because you need sort of the energy type player. And when you have, or sorry, um... When you only have skill in your lineup, you don't really, you kind of give up whether it's the Tom Wilson type or the Brendan Gallagher type. You still need a bit of that kind of chemistry within your lineup. When it comes to like puck retrievals or forechecking. Exactly. So if you need a really good forechecking type of unit. So the best example of this is actually Hockey Canada when they send their team to the World Juniors. While they take obviously the best players they have available, they know that when they throw their fourth line out there, their quote-unquote fourth line, that that's their energy line. So you can have skilled players, but those players have to be able to provide that spark. So in past, it's been an Evander Kane type, a Dana Tyrell type, Michael McLeod a few years ago, even Freddie Gauthier, where your fourth line players, I'm actually really in favor of having your fourth line players also be able to double as players who play specialty teams. So um, whether you have a player that plays on your fourth line that can give you energy, but he's on your second power play unit, or your fourth line center who does give you energy in the way that a Freddie Goche does or an Anthony Sorelli in Tampa Bay, but then when you know you're on the PK, you can throw that guy out there in the way that Tampa throws Sorelli out there, and you know that 
you're going to be good. So I don't think that you can necessarily have all skilled guys because if you have skill throughout your lineup, you still do need to have that responsible sort of shutdown penalty kill line. And I think that your fourth line is probably where you can have more players that sort of platoon in different roles but can provide energy on a consistent basis when needed kind of thing. I just don't think the game is there where you can have an all 5-9 fourth line. See, it's funny. I always like when we disagree because I find that this can often be an I agree podcast. Like, no, you're right. No, you're more right. No, you're more right. But when it comes to uh, the Olympics, uh, I know you brought up the World Juniors. I'm thinking of the Sochi model and how when Team Canada tried to put together their roster, they just went with the best four lines they could go with. And they went with Joe Thornton and Matt Duchesne on the fourth line. Instead of in 2006, I think they left Sidney Crosby off the team. They left Jason Spetz off the team. And Chris Draper was playing on the fourth line. And I just feel like if you can have talent on the ice, even if it might not be the grittiest, best penalty-killing kind of talent, at the end of the day, it's still hockey. And like we were talking about in the top six, Nikita Kucherov's more effective in the modern game than a Wayne Simmons. I don't see why that logic doesn't apply on the fourth line the same way it would on the first line. Well, I think you can have... so when you have an embarrassment of riches in the way that Canada does, and you can afford to have a fourth line with Matt Duchesne on it. Because no one would sit here and say that Chris Kunitz was a better player than Matt Duchesne at that time. It's just Chris Kunitz happened to have chemistry with the best player in the world at the time, Sidney Crosby, so it was a little bit different. But your skill players, for the most part, have the ability to play that fourth line style or that energy style, whereas your regular NHL team does not have Matt Duchesne on their fourth line or Joe Thornton on their fourth line. So you need to be cognizant of that, and you also need to be careful because there are other teams who are still running out. A Ryan Reeves or a Tom Wilson who isn't on the fourth line but could be effective there later in his career. Um, an Andrew Shaw type. So I think that you can't, and I know it's Toronto-centric, you cannot run a line of Tyler Ennis, Trevor Moore, and Nick Patan out there right now because they have and they will get dominated because they are not strong enough on the puck. You don't have someone there that, A, you don't really have a natural center there to begin with, so that's, one, why you would need somebody like Freddie Gauthier. Two, none of those guys really penalty kill. And at the end of the day, your fourth line has to be a line that your coach can throw out to provide a spark because you're not expecting your fourth line to score based on what you're paying them, but you need them not to be a liability while you're out there. And I think right now, the game is still at the point where you do need a guy who can throw a big hit or lean on some guys and maybe five or six years down the road it isn't like that but at least for right now you can't roll out an all five nine line you're just especially in the west my goodness could you imagine rocking up in nashville with a five nine fourth line or rocking up in winnipeg with a five nine fourth line that would not go well i i'd still love to see it We'll, we'll see what happens in the future i just i feel like that might be where the game is heading but before we get to toronto centric talking about the five nine line Patan, Ennis, and company. Let's get to some of the mailbag questions. So I know that you had a few picked out that you thought were really interesting. What was one of the first ones you wanted to answer? So the Clarkson Cup was today. And for anyone who might not know, what's, what is the Clarkson Cup? The Clarkson Cup is the Canadian Women's Hockey League Championship game. So it is, it's the Stanley Cup of uh, women's hockey, except there's two leagues. So there's the Isabel Cup in the NWHL and the Clarkson Cup in the CWHL, but it's their championship, essentially. So, um, thoughts on the Clarkson Cup final being a one-game affair? Is it more fun because of the pressure or less indicative of who the real champ is? And is it more fun because of the pressure or less indicative of who the real champ is that we would usually get with a longer series? Yeah, this is the hard part because I feel like the Super Bowl is probably my favorite sporting event ever because it's one big game, all the marbles, you know, everything's on the line. But at the same time, if you think of a sport like hockey in a one-game scenario, I just feel like puck luck tends to dictate the outcome so much that 
I personally don't like awarding a championship in one game, and I know that that's boring. I know that, like, in the World Juniors, the gold medal game is amazing. In the Olympics, the gold medal game is amazing. But I just feel like, unlike a sport like, say, basketball or football, I feel like the best team doesn't necessarily win the majority of the time in hockey. I feel like it's, you know, 55% of the time because you can get... A hot goalie can completely dominate you, like the, the like the other day when uh, the Leafs got Georgiev or Georgiev. I don't know if you, how you can pronounce it, but that backup on the Rangers, even though they generated forty five or fifty shots, the goalie stonewalled you. I had a championship game that I coached um, it, for Pee Wee. Our team generated twenty four shots. The other team generated five. And we lost one nothing, and I was just like, "Ugh, I hate one games. I like I hate championship one games because we play a full series with this team. We would have dominated them. We would have won. But anything can happen in a one game scenario, and, and it didn't go well for us. And I'm forever bitter. Yeah, you see, like with me, it's in women's hockey right now. It's similar to the IHF in the fact that it is a one game winner take all. Um, but it's hard to do a series because right now that like they're trying, they're in the process of trying to get more people out, and the Clarkson Cup is their marquee event, and from all accounts, it was a terrific event. So, and I used to be an intern at the CWHL, so I kind of know, I guess, I've seen behind the curtain, and I understand why it is a one-game event. Now, I think when, and I will say when, when there is one league, it maybe should go to a three- or five-game series because I think it will be more feasible. But think about it. The CWHL has a team in China. Can you imagine the costs and logistics and whatever else associated with attempting to do a series? A nice home and home on a back-to-back, you know? (laughs) But do you know what I'm saying? And all of these women, for the most part, have jobs. So you cannot be going back and forth to China. Like, it just, it doesn't work. Yeah, realistically, that makes sense. I can understand where you're coming from. I would love to see... Um, a, I would love to see one league. It needs to happen, and that is just that. Because I think once you have one league, the NHL gets behind it in the same way that the NBA is behind the WNBA. And when you have that and you have the full brawn of the NHL marketing power and scope, there's an opportunity for more teams. Let's say you can have 10 or 12 teams now, right? And then you could potentially have playoff series, and it's... In the U.S., so you have, um, instead of going back and forth to China or cross-country to Calgary, maybe you have the Toronto team playing the team in Minnesota. Maybe you have the team in Montreal playing the team in Boston. It's not quite as big of a trek, and logistically it will probably be better, especially when you have maybe 10 or 12 teams. It's a little bit more feasible to have a playoff series, and that's sort of when I think you get a more indicative result. Because when you look at... Montreal on paper who it was Montreal against Calgary you look at Montreal on paper they have Marie-Philippe Poulin and Hillary Knight and that alone without even looking at the rest of the roster those are easily two of the best players in women's hockey right now and I'd say they're the two best in my opinion yeah like I don't even think it's really close Marie-Philippe Poulin is the best Canadian player like it's not even a discussion and I think Hillary Knight the same could be said for her so with that said, hockey is way more of a chance game than it is a skill game. Um, there's like a YouTube video that does a really good job of explaining One of my favorite videos. We'll make sure we link it when we tweet out the podcast. Exactly. It's It basically explains how the different sports like basketball, baseball, football, hockey um, are more or less associated with skill and or chance yeah and the better team in basketball wins much more often than the better team in hockey yeah essentially hockey's way harder to predict and so i think that a series would be good but i think there are other steps that need to be taken first that's a good point all right here's another question uh predictions in the wild card races in both the east and the west who makes it who doesn't in your opinion i know that obviously it's going to come down to luck just like we talked about but Who's your best bet to come out of the East and come out of the West when it comes to those wild card spots? Oh, I'm going to pull up the standings. Hang on. Uh, first of all, Carolina's making it because the storm surge. That's the only reason. I want Carolina to make it so badly. I just want that in the playoffs. It's so entertaining. It's awesome. And stop being the no fun, please. It's fun. Also, if I can put on my analyst hat. Other than goaltending, I'd argue they're one of the best teams in the NHL, and that, much like San Jose, their goaltending's kind of 
obscured the fact that they've been completely dominant at five on five and one of the best penalty kill teams in the league. Sebastian Ajo is looking like a true superstar now. I love Carolina. I love watching them play. They have maybe the best defense in the NHL this season. I think they're arguably better than Nashville when it comes to collectively as a whole, how well their defensemen move the puck up the ice. So I think Carolina's definitely going to make it. And then in the East, it comes down to Columbus or Montreal, basically, right? Those are the two picks you have to make. Yeah, I would say, uh, for me, I think Carolina's getting in as well. Um, I think Columbus is probably going to get in. Um, Just looking right now, Carey Price is likely to play the Sunday night against Carolina, and that'll be two games back-to-back for him. And with Columbus, they have games in hand, and I think they're starting to sort of figure out what they need to do. And for me, I just... I think that what they have is a little bit more sustainable than what Montreal is doing. Is it, though? Because Montreal's dominating shots and chances at 5-on-5. Five five. It's just they don't have the, the finishing talent, you know? And that's sort of it, is they don't have the finishing talent, and Columbus does, and eventually um, Carey Price is not going to be Superman, and he'll give up a bad goal. I mean, every goal he does and so I just think that Columbus is the more well-rounded team, um, especially on the back end. That's fair. Um, I, I, ha- I have to go with the better team at 5-on-5 five five when it comes to like shots and chances. That tends to be like the better predictor moving forward. So I'll go with Montreal and Carolina as my two picks, but I, I totally understand your reasoning. Yeah, and I think, um, I think the West is a little bit different. I think it basically comes down to um, Dallas, Colorado, and Arizona. So there are two spots available for those three, three. teams, right? Like, I don't yeah. think Minnesota's going to get in. Um, you don't think Edmonton's going to go on a, on a run here? You don't think Tobias Reeder's going to lead them to the playoffs? No, I do not. Just to shove it in Bob Nicholson's face? No, just... I don't. It would be great if he got a hat trick, though. That would be so funny. Um, I think I would love to see Arizona get in just because with all the injuries they've had this year the job that Rick Tockett's done and just how that team's come together. I think it's just, it would be a terrific story. I'd also like to see Arizona get in the playoffs. Um, I think Dallas probably gets in, so I think it becomes Colorado, Arizona. And for me, there, that's a tough call because it's basically whose goaltending stands up, right? That's what a lot of this comes down to at the end of the day, right? You could dominate shots, chances, have a great power play, but if your goaltending's at an 850, you're not going to win. Uh, no. So I think Dallas is in, like you said, unless they go on a... I mean, they've been known to collapse late in seasons. It has happened. But I think Dallas is a is your best bet. And then Colorado, Arizona. I think Minnesota has a, has a puncher's chance, even though I don't think it's a great chance. But I think it's boring. I'm going to go with the two most likely in Dallas and Colorado. All right. And then uh, last question and this question probably... I required a little bit of research uh that's for sure um using the eye test it would seem that a split power play as in one minute in the first period and one minute in the second period is worse than having a full two minutes so like the penalties called with one minute remaining in the first period exactly or a period not even the first period just a period um so just from research um the average time between high danger scoring chances on the power play is 67 seconds so that's a minute and seven seconds so if you have a one minute split or even just a split in general it's statistically an automatic kill for the average power play just because if you only have a minute and on average the scoring chance is 67 seconds I mean the odds that you're gonna get set up and have a scoring chance in the first half of the power play are statistically better than the second half because when you account for the fact that the period starts, it's automatically a neutral zone face-off. So if you win that face-off, you now have to set up and get entry. And if you lose that face-off, then you likely have to skate all the way back into your own end, retrieve the puck, and come forward. And by the time that's happened, you're already 25, 30 seconds in, and then you only have 30 seconds to get a scoring chance. So an interesting stat there is that only four power plays in the league create a high danger scoring chance in under a minute on average, and that's Tampa, Toronto, Florida, and Buffalo. Interesting. Yeah, the last two are definitely interesting. I mean, the first two are are not surprising at all, but I think 
and I've long thought this, I know Ray Ferraro's talked about this a lot, having a split power play is essentially useless, especially when you account for that neutral zone faceoff. And just tactically, as a coach, you, you can't approach it the same way because you don't have the full two minutes to work with. Like You've got to rush a scoring chance at that point, and then scoring chance likely isn't the same quality. Wouldn't you agree? The biggest factor for me is the ozone face-off, because if you win an ozone face-off on the power play, you're set up in formation, you're ready to create your chances right off the bat. Whereas neutral zone face-off, honestly, win or lose, it's going to take some effort to get into the offensive zone and get set up. If you lose it, they ice it, you have to go get it. If you win it, you're still not in a great position for the entry. You're still going to have to have your players you know, swing back and create some speed up the ice, so it's still going to take you at least 15 or 20 seconds before you're set up in formation. So... Those are precious seconds that get ticked off the clock. A power play is basically a race against the clock. You have to generate as many chances as you possibly can in 120 seconds, and you don't want to waste any of those if you can avoid it. And that's why the neutral zone faceoff is a killer for me. And yeah, I don't think the first minute is as brutal as it sounds because, again, if you can get set up in formation right away, you do have some time, especially if you win that ozone faceoff. A minute is plenty of time to generate chances, but... The second the team ices it and you have to regain entry, yeah, you don't have much time to work with. So I think the first half of the power play would be surprisingly effective, but the second half of that power play starting the next period with a center ice faceoff and you got, let's say, 58 seconds left in your power play, yeah, you're probably not going to score. Well, even if you think about it, let's say you have a minute and 15 seconds before the period ends and you now have 45 seconds, it's, it's an auto kill. The odds of you winning a clean draw and getting a clean zone entry and a scoring chance in 45 seconds from the neutral zone, like, they're basically zero. Just to sort of wrap it up, I mean, a split power play, I'm pretty sure, Ian, you'd probably agree. Um, I can't say that I've seen a team score right off the bat at the beginning of a period, so it means you essentially, your power play is about as long as what you have at the end of the period to get it going and you better hope that you win that ozone draw and you're set up immediately because like unless it's a blown coverage off the face off in the second period like most of the time you're looking at not many scoring opportunities coming at the beginning of that next period with the power play exactly and even on the power play just because of the way the puck movement works and with the availability of royal road passes and and one-timers, most of the scoring chances are high-danger scoring chances. Yeah, like, it's funny. Teams typically aren't wasting shots on the power play. If they fire a shot from, like, a half-decent area, like, they're not just trying to get pucks on net. It's usually because the seam has opened up and they're trying to beat the goalie. Exactly. So I think, basically, to create a scoring chance on the power play, you've got to have a good setup. And for that to happen, off a neutral zone face-off with a finite amount of time at the beginning of a period is... The chances are slim to none. Good stuff. All right, so I think that is the podcast for this week. That was a lot of fun. We talked about some of our favorite speedy, skilled players under the size of, you know, 5'10", under the the weight of 180 pounds. You know, our our good old Elias Pettersson, who is quote-unquote 170 pounds, or Johnny Gaudreau, who is quote-unquote 5'9". I don't believe any of that. <laughs> uh, neither do I. That is a lie. Don't believe the lies that NHL.com tells you. But I thought it was an interesting chat today. So do you want to just quickly wrap up your thoughts when it comes to the impact of size in the modern game? Yeah, I, I mean, I think we're both of the same mindset here. And I think a lot of people are starting to sort of see it this way. And the fact that your superstars don't need to be your big power forwards anymore in the way that they used to be. The game has changed in the last even five years, but definitely in the last 10 years, where your superstar can be five foot nine. Hey, look, there's my dog. I was waiting for the dog to make its first appearance on the podcast. So That's peanut, everyone. Um, but you don't need a player to be six foot two and 220 pounds. Your dog disagrees, I'm just saying. Yeah, my dog disagrees with everybody and everything. <laughs> Um, she's nuts. If a bird flies by, it's a national issue. And so <laughs> just getting back to it, um, a guy like Brad Marchand, he can play all situations and he's five foot nine. So you can be a very effective superstar and you're, you don't have to be that big. Yep. And I, we, I know we slightly disagree when it comes to maybe the, the merits of running super smaller, speedy, skilled guys on your fourth line. But again, it'll be interesting to see where the NHL is five to ten years from now because 
like we said, 10 years ago in 2008, 2009, the top 10 scorers in the league were mostly those big, strong players who could, you know, dominate play on the cycle. Right now, it's a bunch of smaller, thin guys who are just extremely skilled and extremely smart, like your Nikita Kucherovs, your Braden Points, Mitch Marners, Patrick Kane, Sebastian Ajo. These are the guys who are taking over the game. So 10 years from now, maybe it goes even smaller. Maybe it goes even tinier, even speedier and and more skilled. So I love the way the game's been evolving. I think it's led to a more entertaining brand of hockey, even though we don't get those, you know, Detroit Red Wings, Colorado Avalanche brawls from the 90s, which I got to admit, the inner hockey fan of me does miss those, but I can understand why uh, those might not be ideal for, for the league moving forward. Yeah, that might not be great for the concussion lawsuit. Yeah, I can understand that. So... We're going to get out of here on a positive note. Um, You're wrong. Your dog is right. And uh, that's just the way this podcast has to go in the future. Oh, and just a a quick thing. I tweeted about it this weekend, but um, my mom is a beater three times of cancer, and it is the worst disease on earth, and I hate it. Um, She's raising money for childhood cancer, and if she raises... I think $40,000 if her company raises, she's going to shave her head. And she's sponsoring a, a child named Adam, um, who's gone through multiple surgeries because he's got cancer. And um, definitely near and dear to my heart, I've definitely almost lost my mom to cancer. So um, the link's in on my Twitter feed. And if you can support it um, and you would like to, I mean, I would really appreciate it. And so would she. Um, and if you can't, that that's totally okay, too. Just trying to get it out there. I mean, the faster we get a cure for this awful disease, I think the happier that everybody will be. Yeah, I, th- I think we all know someone who's been affected by cancer, whether it's a, dr- a family member or a friend. It's, it's just, it's the worst. Uh, I don't know what else to say. It's, it's a great cause, and uh, and I'll make sure that we retweet that out to, so if anybody wants to help support the cause can help that out. But yeah, I, there's no better way than to go out than that. So thanks for that, Rachel. And We'll be back next week, and I don't know what the topic is just yet. We're, we we tend to decide on them throughout the week based on what's happening in the NHL or based on what we really want to talk about, but I have to think we'll be back next week with something fun to talk about. So so have a good week, Rachel, and I guess we'll, we'll talk next week. Sounds good. We will talk next week. All right. Take care, everybody. See you next week. Thank you for listening to the Staff and Graph podcast. You can check out Rachel Dory's work at The First Pass, and Ian Tullock's written work can be found at The Athletic, and the Leafs Geeks podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this. Also be sure to follow these nerds on Twitter at Rachel Dory and at Ian Graff.